Well, I can tell you for one, I haven't had enough worshiping today. I haven't had enough worshiping in music today. That just left me wanting so much more to come and uh, praise God. So thank you so much, our Father and our God. We just, we just thank you for this rich moment that there, this has been to be with you and to, to call out to each other and to call out to you, my Jesus, there is none like you. Lord, I, I think sometimes we don't even contemplate who our Savior is, who our Lord is, what you are capable of, uh, what you can do, the power that is resident in Almighty God. Uh, Lord, we, we see our circumstances, we see our challenges, we see our problems as so massive, and in reality, they are nothing to you. And so our Father... Help us to see you with a vision that is accurate. Help us to love you as we ought. Help us to praise you with passion. Help us to trust you with completeness. Oh, Father, I pray that you would visit, continue to visit us with the power of your spirit this day. I thank you, Father, that you are here among us. I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Our Father, I thank you for that realization. I thank you that there is nothing too hard for you. With God, all things are possible. I thank you, Father, that there is none that is unreachable. There is no one who is too far lost that you cannot reach and save and rescue. There is no life that you can't transform. There is no mess that you cannot make into splendor. There is nothing, Father, that you cannot do. And so I pray, Lord, this day that you would cause for us to have a fresh awareness of of your power and presence. I pray, Father, that we would become disenchanted with anything in our lives that would interfere with the full presence of God. I pray, Father, that we become... Uh, dissatisfied with anything that would get in the way or be an obstacle or barrier to the power of God in our lives. I pray, Father, that we would not settle for anything but what you have for us. I pray, Father, that we would not be enslaved again to the things that Christ died to rescue us from, to set us free. I pray, Father, that you would use the word of God this morning to speak to our hearts the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to change us that we would not be the same ever again. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I I must say to you that um, God has me burdened and impassioned about the nature of his power in our lives and our ability to access that power, experience that power, see God working in our lives in powerful ways, in ways that we've never seen before, and working in our congregation in ways, moving us into our community in ways that we've never anticipated before, having stories and testimonies of rescue that we could never imagine, resourcing us in ways that we couldn't even dream about, I see these kinds of things waiting for us to respond to the power of God. And so the question that, that continues to come to my heart and my life, in, if, to me and to you, is are we experiencing what it means to be in Christ by faith? 
what it means to live abundantly and fully in faith, or by faith, in Christ alone. And I I would suggest that it is highly likely that many of us, in taking assessment of our own lives, would say, no, I don't think so. I don't think my life is experiencing the abundance of what Christ really has for me. I don't think that I'm experiencing the fullness of the power of God in my situation, in my circumstances. And it's quite possible that I'm relying upon the wrong things, and I'm not really even sure about that. You see, here's the problem in our lives. The factors that sort of uh, impose themselves upon us, that interfere with us experiencing the fullness of the power of God. That the reason that the Apostle Paul was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write the letter to the Galatians in the first place. It it seems to me that there's a theological red alert that, that comes out of this text that leaps at us, that causes us to continue to go further into the text and examine it and be careful with it and look at it. And it really leaps at us from Galatians 2 verse 4. This is kind of the launching pad of, of why we should really uh, be alarmed uh, in our own lives and the lives of the people around us in the community of faith. Because it would seem that this letter is written because it is possible for God's people to be rescued from themselves and from them, their sins and brought into the kingdom of the amazing light of Jesus Christ and to be, br- and to be pulled back into enslavement all over again. And the reason I say that is because this is what Paul is saying, is talking about in the text. And if it couldn't happen, he wouldn't have bothered writing about it. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 4, he gives the distinct impression and, and uh, the, the um, caution that there are possible infiltrations and interferences into your life, into the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus to make you a slave all over again. And what what would you become a slave to all over again? You'll become a slave to the things that Jesus rescued you from in the first place. And in particular, by way of a a generic uh, description, uh, you used to live on the basis of your own human reason. Before you came to Christ, you made decisions in your life on the basis of your own intellectual or mental savvy. You decided to do this or decided to not do that or whatever and in describing the direction of your life, you thought with your own mind, you made decisions with your own mind. Not only that, but because you are physical makeup, we are, we are fundamentally physical, material beings, the, the war constantly in our lives is to, is to trust and rely on the physical. We fundamentally are wooed by sight. We see things before us. We make decisions on the basis of what we see because that's the most immediate. That seems to make the most sense. And so we have, uh, we have these challenges of the reasoning of our minds, the sight of our eyes, which if you pay attention was the first mistake in the Garden of Eden. And, and we have this satanic opposition on top of it who's warring against our freedom in Christ. 
If Satan loses you to Jesus, he doesn't want you to, to lose you entirely to Christ. He wants to continue to interfere with your relationship with the power of Christ that you ought to have. And so you have this, these three things conflicting and, and, and converging on your life all of the time. This war against reason, this war against sight, and this war against satanic opposition. And these are the things that enslave us all over again to the freedom we were meant to have in Christ. Does that mean we disengage our minds when we come to Christ? Absolutely not. Does that mean that that God never shows us the way with things we see? Absolutely not. Is Satan going to stop opposing you because you have freedom in Christ? A thousand times no. But each of these things, if we capitulate to them, will put a barrier in in our access to the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what Paul is contending for in the book of Galatians. And we can see from the fact that this was perhaps the very first New Testament book that this is an old problem. And if any of us know our own lives and the lives of people we know who are Christians, this is not a problem unique to that day alone. This is, in my opinion, fundamentally the biggest issue and obstacle holding back what God would do in our midst, in our community, and in our world if we would pay attention to what he wants for us. And by the way, this doesn't only jeopardize your spiritual growth and fullness in the Lord, but these things put salvation itself at risk. This is not just a discussion from the Word of God about how to feel better in Christ or how to access more power in Christ. This is about life and death, eternal destiny, eternal life and eternal death. The very essence of the theology of salvation is on the line with these things. That's why I'm calling it a red alert. This is an urgent, urgent issue in our lives that we must take seriously. More than just freedom in Christ, it is highly possible that people who think they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, are relying on physical behavior alone for their salvation. And works can't save you. Now, the challenge of this text and the book of Galatians itself, and hopefully we'll help to overcome that challenge in terms of contextualizing or bringing it to life in the modern setting will be met this morning. But the challenge in making this text come alive to us in our own setting is it seems so far away and so long ago. What does this have to do with us? I I mean, Paul is talking about Gentiles getting saved and he's talking about Jews imposing ritual customs on them. And we sit here in Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, Ontario in 2012 and say... What do we have to do with Gentiles and Jews imposing ritual customs on us? How is this relevant to us? How does the the rubber hit the road in our lives in this particular text? It doesn't mean anything to us, really. 
we agree entirely with the text. We agree entirely with Paul. I mean, that's a horrible thing that the Jews were imposing upon the Gentiles. But what does it do for me? What does it mean to me? Can, can I take you into a world of the, the generic of this theology and make the application come right to Calvary this morning by saying this, that there are generically speaking for all times in all places two kinds of people who get saved. And the two kinds of people are these. One, those who are rescued from the world. From, in other words, those who are rescued from backgrounds that have no formal religious training. And there are some of you in here who, who would, would say, that, that's me. That, I, I came to know the Lord from a, a background that really we didn't have much religious instruction. We really didn't come from a formal religious background. So we were really rescued right straight out of the world. There were a number of, of people in, in our, our morning congregation. How many would say, that's my background. That's where I came from. I came right from out, out there. Okay. The second kind of people are those who are rescued from religion or from within religion. These are people who were raised in a church or raised in a synagogue or raised in a mosque or raised in a temple or whatever other kind of sort of formalized religious setting. And and your parents, whatever, took you and grew you up in some sort of institutional setting, uh, a religious setting. You have to get saved in those settings as well. Now, how many people would say, yeah, that's me. I came from a formal religious background and that's where I got saved from. Okay, so some of you aren't owning up to anything. So that means there's a lot of people lost in here this morning. I'm going to preach a salvation message and there's going to be a lot of people get saved here this morning. Some of you are saying, oh, I don't even know what you're even talking about. Anybody? I'm looking for it. Okay. I saw Zach over there giving me kind of the eye. Put, put a little bit up there. Zach, you're saved from one or the other, buddy either the world or from within religion. Now, to follow Christ alone, each group is required to leave behind different things. But it's one thing, really. We think it's different things and all this complex of things, but it really is, for both parties, reliance on the physical. It doesn't matter what your background is or where you were... Where you first encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, the change that had to happen in your life is you had to say no to the physical, say no to self, say no to self-discipline, say no to all kinds of, uh, of, of physical things, and say yes to Christ, the Spirit of God. And it is with great difficulty that that's done. It requires acceptance that salvation is not about a form of behavior. Salvation is not about a set of customs to follow. Salvation is about trust in Christ alone. That's what salvation is about. Salvation is about Christ, uh, trust in Christ alone. And, and by the way, there is probably not many of us in here who would disagree with that. You say, yeah, I know that. I know that salvation is about trust in Christ alone. The, 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 the challenge comes in In this, knowing that doesn't mean you're living it. That's where the challenge comes in. Now, um, to those who are rescued from the world or from those, in in terms of making the application from this text, to those who are, are rescued from the world, in other words, rescued from no formal religious setting, we'll call you Gentiles. Right? You're the Gentiles of this text. 
You're, you're saved out of no formal religious background. And Christ has replaced self. From that background, you lived your life relying on reason. You relied on yourself, on your savvy. And Christ replaced that in your life, or was supposed to have. The second group, to those who are rescued from within the church or uh, within organized religion, we're calling you the Jews of this text. Because you, have, you bring with you all kinds of religious customs and rituals that you brought with you to the intersection and confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're calling you Jews, and Christ has replaced religion and religious customs, or was supposed to have, because you formerly were relying on religion for acceptance with God. Now, those are the two kinds of people. This is the application of the text. So in here this morning, you're either a Gentile, for purposes of this text and application, saved from a non-formal, informal, or no, no form of religion at all, or you were, you're a Jew, for the purposes of application of this text, saved from, uh, from within a religious structure. Okay, are you with me? Yes? Okay. At issue then, in this particular setting and in our own settings, the Jews were struggling with this replacement of Christ replacing religious customs. That's what the deal is. They were insisting on preserving their nationalism and cultural distinctiveness by way of ceremonies and rituals. They were insisting upon uh, holding on to their uh, personal purity through acts of the physical. They were um, not recognizing that in, it, it was Christ, in Christ that they were now pure, and in Christ was now the distinctive. I, I hope no one else leaves. I'm, 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 I'm emptying the building. We're emptying the building here this morning. Now, adding Christ, I, I suppose this is a bit of an ouch factor. I don't know, but, but adding Christ to your religious customs kept them, the Jews... And will keep you, will keep you slaves to the flesh. And you will not have what it is to experience freedom to access straight through the power of Christ in your life. Now, Paul continues to go on in this text to say that at issue in this specific section that I want to look at this morning, in verse 14 at the very end, the issue is forcing people who've been saved from the world or from religion to follow customs rather than follow Christ alone. Notice what the text says. Paul now is talking to Peter, and he is saying in verse 14 at the very end, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. And you're saying here this morning, that's preposterous. Who would do such a thing? Who would try to force people to follow religious customs? I can't even imagine that happening. Because we remember and, and remind ourselves that what is at stake here? The purity of the gospel is at stake. And dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit is at stake. 
I, I think you'll agree with me that those are two really big guns to be at stake. I mean, that really is the essence of who we are in Christ. That's the point. The point of all that we're about, the point of our gathering together, the point of our worship, the point of us existing together, the point of us being on mission is about the gospel and about the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our point. We aren't a club. We aren't a charity. We aren't, we aren't just a nice place to gather. We aren't a group of friends. As much as all of those things are true about us, we're about the gospel and about the power of God. That's our distinctiveness. And that's what's at risk here. And it's always at risk. Every generation, generation after generation after generation. Martin Luther, who by the way, this was his favorite New Testament book. In, de- in describing the essence of this book, he said that, that what was always, the, what, what this book surfaces is the fragility of faith alone. And it's always, always on the line for every generation. Because we believe the gospel is this. That we have been saved by grace alone. Through faith alone in... You are really passionate about this. Through Christ alone. I hope he didn't hear us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our message. That's our distinctiveness. That's the gospel. And if, there's, if, it, if, this, if the gospel falters, if, if this teaching falters in any possible one of those issues, in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then salvation itself is inaccessible. That's the seriousness of this matter. So serious was it that there was a huge blow up between Peter and Paul over this matter. That's our text today. Verse 11, chapter 2. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group or Judaizers or religious customs guys. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were acting in line with, when they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? I got to talk to you about this blow up. Antioch was a city in Syria, north of, uh, of, of Israel. When in Acts chapter 8, the church, the early church became under heavy persecution, it scattered. And those salvation first came in Jerusalem and, and then scattered and moved. The evangelists moved out. The people moved out because they had the gospel and they were teaching it everywhere. And they were preaching everywhere and people were getting saved. And this city, Antioch, was a, a, a significant city. It was a powerful city. In fact, it was the Roman capital of the east. It is suggested that there's probably a, 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 a half a million people who were there and a large contingency of Jews. And, and the gospel caught on in Antioch. 
And Barnabas was one of the early teachers who was um, commissioned from Jerusalem to go to Antioch and preach the gospel and and teach the people uh, who had been saved about the great things of Jesus and to take them deeper into the truths of the the theology of salvation. And so Barnabas taught there. And he realized that the job was was immense and and too, too large for just him. And so he went and he got Paul and he brought Paul to Antioch. And the two of them were teaching there uh, for, for about a year. And then some of the guys, some of the pillars of the faith started to wander up from Jerusalem like Peter. And Peter came up and, and uh, before Peter arrived there, we, we come to Acts chapter 10 where, where Peter had an encounter with God. And, and if you remember, there was a, a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, a centurion, who had a vision from God that he needed to get saved. And so he and in this vision, he realized that, that this man, Peter, was going to come to him. And, and Peter wasn't ready to, to, to reach into the Gentiles because in the customs of the Jews, it was uh, not acceptable to eat with Gentiles. And, and so God gave Peter a vision. Remember in Acts chapter 2, and he showed him this, this net. And, and it, was, um, it was like a redneck festival. It was a redneck banquet. It was filled with all kinds of weird food, including, it says, reptiles. And, and, and um, in it, it says, in that, in that particular text, God says to Peter, which rednecks like to use as their, as their theological motto, get up and kill, Peter. And, and so, so that happened in Acts chapter 10, and, and Peter sees this, tech, sees this vision, and he realizes that, that, that what God says is pure, is pure. And, 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 and so he could go to Cornelius and reach him for the gospel. And so Peter, at the time, had become really a on fire for Gentiles coming to know Christ. He comes up from, from Jerusalem and, and he's, he's eating with the Gentiles and the Gentiles and Jews in this brand new church uh, setting are eating together and we have no idea about the, the significance of eating together the way they did. You see, eating together back in that particular culture in that day was the highest form of association and acceptance you could do. It meant that, that you're, I'm with you and you're with me and I love you and, and, and come and share in the blessing of this most precious commodity, food, that has come from the hand of God and I want to share you, my food with you and I want to bless you from my family and I want to ex- express to you that in sharing with you the blessing from my family, how significant and how important you are to me. And, and so this early church was doing that, and they were doing it with a passion, and, and, and they were growing in the Lord. And Peter came up, and he became a part of that, and he was, he was eating with them and all of that. And then there were some guys who came up from the south, American evangelists, I think they were. <laughs> and, and they decided that they were going to bring all of their religious customs with them. And among them, of course, was, wait, wait a second, these guys, are, they're not circumcised, they don't, they don't practice ritual purity, they're not, they don't practice our ceremonial laws, they're eating anything they want. We're not eating with these guys. So these guys came from the church in Jerusalem, James, guys from James who came up to, from the church in Jerusalem, and they started to eat by themselves as Jews again. And, and, of course, Peter was like, whoa, these are biggies from Jerusalem. Uh, they're not liking what I'm doing. I think I'm going to go back to my old ways, too. And I think I'm going to stop eating with the, the Gentiles. And the church was in danger of becoming a disaster. The very thing Jesus died for is that there would be no male, no female, no, no, no race, no creed, no color. It would be 
the church of Jesus Christ that would break down all of the distinctives, the external distinctives. What was worse is through these actions of these so-called pillars of the church that even Paul says, my buddy Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of, what was he? The son of encouragement. Even Barnabas, the guy who, who I have, he's been my mission buddy all these years. He's the one who brought me here. We've been teaching these people. We've been seeing the church grow. He's even going to this. And Paul was pulling his hair out. Became a bald man after this. It's not in the text, but it's theological imagination. And he confronts Peter in public. Now that took some courage. Because Peter was walking with Jesus. And up until that point, the church, can you imagine the Gentiles who'd come to know Christ? And they'd, they'd, they'd gather their family and Peter would come and eat with them and they'd say, kids, Peter, who walked with Jesus, is in our home. We're in. We're in the church. We're in the family of God. And these guys, with their religious baggage, were messing it up. And Paul's question to Peter and the rest was, are people to come to Judaism or come to Christ? And of course, we all know the answer, to come to Christ, of course. So he says then, why, since you are living like a Gentile, and you've abandoned all those ways, why, why now are you joining in with forcing Gentiles to start to live like Jews all over again? Why would you do that? And we think, that's outrageous. Who would ever do something? Like, who, would, who would try to heap on somebody religious customs? as a way of coming to faith in Christ or as a way of growing in Christ. Who, who would even think of something like that? That's outrageous. We would never do something like that. The church, the, the modern evangelical church would never do something like that. So how does this even apply to us today? Well, I have a question for Calvary this morning. Are people to come to the church or come to Christ? Answer? Still with me? That's what we say. But is that how we act? I'm going to get a little ouchy here for a moment. And I can because I'm a product of this. Think. Let me ask you a question. Did we teach our children who have been in the church from birth to convert to Christ? Or convert to the church. 
Did we entrust to them the Holy Spirit or the holy customs of conservative churches? And let me ask you a further question. Did, did we teach new believers or lost people to convert to church, religious customs, or convert to Christ? Because that's the important question for us in terms of ap- applying this text this morning. You'll, perhaps you know that there are 613 ceremonial laws in Judaism. Martin Luther nailed his 91 theses on the Wittenberg door. I want to bring to your attention Rick's 41 church customs and rules that have been foisted on us or our children, mostly unrecorded, but causes for separating Christians from Christians, and sadly, Christians from the power of God's Spirit. So here they are. Because in reality, we've stated together that people are to come to Christ and to Christ alone. There should be nothing in between us and him. But some of the things that I've noted that may be getting in the way or may have gotten in the way is this list. The list starts this way, and this, this list is, of course, the list of conservative evangelical churches, mostly. I've thrown a couple of liberal things in, too, that maybe make us churchizers like they were Judaizers. And here it goes. No playing cards, no dancing, no gambling, no alcohol, no movies, no TV, No TV on Sunday. No sports. No sports on Sunday. No pants on girls, especially on Sunday. Hats in church. They should have dresses. Hats in church if female. (laughs) I had to qualify that one. (laughs) Or else we'd be sinning. Hats in church if female. Suits and ties for men. No wonder the first service was staring at me like, what you talking about, Willis? Anyway... King James Version only, hymns only, no instruments in church, no guitars, piano and organ only, no drums ever, bowling, yes, but not on Sunday, no swimming on Sunday, in fact, at NBC, unless you have a bar of soap, you can't go into the water, no preparing food on Sunday, not anymore, no working on Sunday, no restaurants on Sunday, closed communion, because we only properly fellowship with those who are just like us, must be baptized to get saved, must be confirmed, must be a church member, must speak in tongues, church on Sunday only, church at 11 a.m., must go to church two times on Sunday and one time in the middle of the week, Wednesday only, women on one side, men on the other side in church, no paid pastor, no playing games on Sunday, must sit in a square formation at the meeting, no shopping on Sunday, must give 10% before tax, must give 10% after tax, no canned music accompaniment, unleavened bread only for communion, no art in church, thankfully we've covered it all up, and no crosses in church. And you know what? I can't see Jesus anymore. And I wonder, 
I wonder as we read this text and look at this text and say, wow, we would never do something like that. We would never discourage people who are coming to faith by a bunch of imposed rules and rituals and religious customs. Sadly, the massive defection from evangelical churches of our next generations tells us something different. The pressure imposed to conform to the custom of the church crowd replaces the discipline of learning to listen and walk by the Spirit and puts at risk legitimate salvation at all. Because, folks, if you won't listen to those rules, you won't listen to the Spirit of God. And if you don't listen to the Spirit of God, you'll never listen to those rules. And let me just say something to you. Not all of those things doing or refraining from doing is bad. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a number on that list that God is not giving me freedom to do for reasons. That's another sermon I want to talk to you about. I'll talk to you about that. In fact, we're going to have a Q&A next Sunday night, and you can just whew, ask But what's at risk is legitimate salvation. Saved by Christ alone and not by attention to religious, ritual, customs, and detail. Because the great fear in my life is that there are people populating the churches, evangelical churches, who have attempted to be saved by religious customs. or have been discouraged away from salvation by the imposition by what Paul calls, Peter, hypocrisy. Now our time is gone, and uh, I just want to draw a conclusion out of this. There's more I can say, but we'll do that another time. What causes you to stop acting in line with the truth? Because that's what Paul takes Peter to task over. He says, you know, I, I noticed that, that you, you're, you're not walking, you were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. What causes that to happen? And with this, I'll close. The flaw in Peter's life at that time is fundamentally the same flaw that most of us have to overcome by the power of God. And it will kill us every time. And it will kill the work of God every time. And it will, it will discourage the people of God every time if this flaw surfaces in your life. And that flaw in Peter's life was he regularly took his eyes off Jesus and put his eyes on other things. Let me give you quickly three examples and we'll wrap it up. Do you remember? And, and God, by the way, was trying to teach Peter. God was trying to, to grow Peter out of this. But he still wasn't out of it. I think that's, in some ways, an encouragement to all of us, you know, when you think, man, if the stalwart like Peter, who walked with Jesus, was struggling still with his faith and with trusting in the Lord and, and needing to grow, then there's hope for me. 
Do you remember when Peter was on the stormy sea and then the boat and Jesus came walking out in the stormy waters? And, and what did Peter do? And we're, we're like, yeah, Peter, look at him. He's getting out of the boat. I mean, that showed a lot. He was, he was doing something that all the other guys weren't doing, that's for sure. And as he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water. And then it says in the text in Matthew chapter 10, and then he looked at the wind. What did he do? Took his eyes off Jesus and looked at his circumstances, and down he went. He was by the fire pit a little bit later at the time of the crucifixion. A young girl comes up to him. No big deal. Starts telling him, hey, you were with, you were with this guy, Jesus. I know you were with Jesus. You have a Galilean accent. You're from the north. I know you were with Jesus. And what does Peter say? I don't know the man. He took his eyes off Jesus, the man, and looked at himself. I don't know the man. A little bit later, God gives him another crack at this. Jesus, John, Peter hanging out. Remember at the sea, fish thing, fish feed and all that stuff? Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to have a real tough finale in your life going to be a mess but trust in me what does it say in the text as they're talking eye to eye Peter turns and looks at the disciple that Jesus loved and says what about him three times Peter took his eyes off Jesus and failed this is the fourth time I'm just saying to us as a church, the call on us from the text is for us to get our eyes off of all the self and self-discipline and rituals and customs and all of that and focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith because our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our growth and sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Jesus concludes it this way. To Peter, to Paul, to Barnabas, to James, to you, to me. Two words. Follow me. That's it. That's what salvation is. That's what walking in faith in the Lord is. Total trust in Christ. Total praise of the Lord. Follow me. Not rules. Not rituals. Not emotions, not feelings, not local customs. They're all social cultural constructs that stand in stark contrast to life in the Spirit. Train yourself through the Word of God to listen to the voice of God. That's what we're called to do. So I have to ask you this morning in closing, 
Have you come to Christ or have you just come to church? Your eternal destiny hangs on the line with how you answer that question. Our Father and our God, thank you for teaching us and instructing us from your word. I thank you for the simplicity yet the profundity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid in this church to trust the Holy Spirit. Would you please, Lord, help us to trust the Spirit of God. The same God who saved us will keep us and will grow us and will direct us until we go home. Lord, please, nothing but that. Nothing but Christ alone. For Jesus' sake, amen. Beloved, as I think a little bit more about these things, I realize that that no amount of self-discipline nor any amount of attention to religious customs and rituals can rescue us from sin, can stop us from sin. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can do that. Only God can save us and rescue us. And so the question that really you you must wrestle with is, is, has there been in your life a time of clear distinction, a transaction that has taken place whereby you once were relying on self and reason and savvy or religious customs and rituals, but you have turned away from all of that to rely on Christ alone by faith? That transaction has to clearly have taken place for you to be saved. What will you say to the Lord God when you stand before Him to be the grounds for your acceptance by Him? Will it be your self-discipline? Will it be your good living? Will it be your charity? Will it be your attention to evangelical religious rituals? No. When you stand before the Father in heaven, your grounds of acceptance will be one person alone. I'm accepted, Father, because I've trusted in Christ Jesus as my Savior. He alone has saved me. By your grace. Thank you, Father. As we pause and bow our heads for prayer, in the first service, there were a number who were confused about this transaction. And I'm going to give you an opportunity just to slip up your hand so I can pray for you. Is there anybody here this morning who says, you know what, I'm confused about that transaction. I may still be relying on myself or relying on religious customs or attention to certain details like that for my salvation or for my sanctification. Would you pray for me, Pastor, please? Would you put your hand up if that's you? Okay, all right. Anybody else? Yeah, okay. Yes, okay. Our Father and our God, thank you for your presence among us right now this morning. Thank you for the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. 
to work on hearts. And Lord, I pray that this transaction will be crystal clear. That salvation is about turning our back on idols of self, religious customs, all the things that were imposed upon us as kids or people imposed upon us. They confused us, God, in the way to a faith in Christ alone as our Savior. He's the one who died for our sins. And a Holy Spirit transaction that comes into our lives and changes us. Oh, Father, would you make that transaction this morning in the hearts of those who are sincerely calling to you by faith, by your grace alone, in Christ alone. Before I say amen, I'm going to invite those who put their hands up to, to come and visit with one of our pastors or pastor's wives who will be here at the front. And we can talk to you about this and pray with you. And so, our Father, to you who belongs all the glory and all the honor and all the power, forever and ever, amen.